This is Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. If you're just joining us, please go back and start at episode one. I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. This memoir is my experience of becoming a first-time mother and navigating the healthcare system for my son, who was diagnosed with a rare condition. Data and discovery. I was very proud of myself today. After a few emotionally and physically exhausting days, I felt like we were back on track. I was racking my brain trying to figure out what had changed to cause our difficult string of days. So I consulted with Dr. Safta, your primary doctor and grandma. I mentioned that this week we stopped the medication amlodipine completely and asked if that could have an effect. Well, darling, Dr. Safta thought my differential diagnosis was very interesting. Differential diagnosis is just fancy doctor speak for the other options of what the problem could be aside from your first guess. It's one of those words that gets you in the club, getting the doctors to talk to you on a peer level. Like when you use the terms due diligence, that is homework or liquidity, the ability to convert assets into cash with financiers. It helps them realize that they're allowed to speak with you on their level. Dr. Safta taught me that. Anyways, back to the amlodipine. I spoke to your primary endocrinologist, Dr. Smith, and told him that was the only medical change we made this week. I asked whether it could be a factor. He said that we should try putting you back on it and see what happens. Well, it turned out that amlodipine, which they put you on for high blood pressure, is also a calcium channel blocker. Controversial in the medical literature as to whether it can affect sugars, but let me tell you, you are an angel baby with your sugars ever since we went back to it. Super stable. I was really despairing yesterday, but today I was awarding myself an honorary doctorate. My title henceforth would be Dr. Chief Snuggle Officer. I realize that in the NICU, medicine is more of an art than a science. There is a lot more trial and error than they let on. The problem with doctors is that they tend not to treat each medication or treatment as a separate variable. Something isn't working, you feel worse, so in reaction they change the whole treatment plan instead of isolating each variable to measure its effect. There should be a course in big data, variables, and methodology in med school. We currently have so much data in healthcare. Every patient is producing hundreds and thousands of data points every hour. They should learn how to use the data to diagnose and treat patients. In the meantime, in the nearly seven weeks we had been back home, we got used to our calculated methodology of isolating and changing one variable at a time. It was very apparent that the amlodipine was the only variable that had changed in the previous few days. You were stable and I could breathe a big sigh of relief. I now worshiped at the feet of the god of amlodipine. A chance meeting with Vienna. It was weeks before your planned eye surgery. You were eight months old and wearing glasses at the time. We were rotating, putting a patch over your eye as instructed by your eye doctor. Sometimes people who passed us on the street would peer into your stroller and say, glasses, so young? I would just smile and nod and continue on our way, laughing to myself that glasses were the least of what we were dealing with. As far as I was concerned, they were an accessory trumped by far more significant, urgent, and life-threatening health concerns, 
The glasses were merely ornamental, and truth be told, they became part of your personal style. We were on an outing in the neighborhood, and we stopped on the sidewalk to admire the rose bushes when an older woman walked by. She must have been in her 80s or 90s. She stopped by your stroller to peek in. Glasses, she asked. I rolled my eyes and nodded politely in her direction. So young, she said. Uh Uh-huh, I replied, wanting to keep on our way without being too rude. She startled me by taking my hand. When I was a young girl in Vienna, she began, I was four, and I couldn't see very well. My eyes were partially crossed. I was scheduled for an eye surgery, and then the Nazis came. They took away all of our glasses and canceled my surgery. She turned over her wrist to show me her number, tattooed on her forearm. She stopped her story there. Her eyes were teary, and I could tell that it was too hard for her to continue. He is very lucky to have glasses so young, and it's good that you are dealing with it so early. He will go to surgery, and everything will be fine. He will live a long life, she said with certainty. She squeezed my hand and continued on her way. I was taken aback by her story. It reminded me of a different time and place where people like us wouldn't have had access to healthcare and doctors like we did 70 years later. It reminded me that many people, even today, don't have this kind of access to healthcare. Her certainty comforted me, and suddenly this surgery, your eye surgery, became less daunting. For a moment, I was able to hold on to the hope that everything would be all right. Eye surgery. And here we are, again, inpatient, another waiting room, another lifetime of waiting, waiting to breathe deeply, waiting to know that you are safe. I'm so sick of waiting, of feeling defeated. I have no more tears to cry. The well is dry, no more energy to feel. I am empty. Running on empty is difficult, but I assume that most moms do it often. Motherhood almost demands it. I know now that I have no control, no influence over the outcome of events. That used to be an overwhelming feeling that I have no control, but I've made my peace with it. I have struggled with it and it has defeated me. So I am waiting once again waiting. Grandpa Sid. Grandpa Sid was an amazing man. He was 12 when he and his family left Germany on the last boat, the Aquitania, that was allowed out in 1939. He grew up in New York and enlisted in the army during World War II to go back and fight the Nazis. He never spoke about that dark time in history. He never spoke about the war. He was a loving and proud grandfather. He loved the arts and music. He made sure that his grandchildren were exposed to culture, dance, music, theater. He was 87 when he passed away. He was still playing softball and volunteering at the local hospital up until his death. He was the first grandparent I lost. You were eight months old. I flew to New York for two days to attend his funeral. I remember the chazan, the choir master of his synagogue, giving his eulogy. He spoke of Grandpa Sid's love of music, his joy for life, 
and his ability to appreciate the beauty in life. I regret that he never got to meet you in person. You Skyped with him a few times, but he never got to hold you, to hug you, to kiss you. I miss him, and I wish that you had the privilege of meeting him too, of learning from him, of loving him as I did. His memory will be a blessing, and I will always remember how proud he was of you, of us, even from very far away. I wish for you that you inherit his love of life, his love of music, his strength, and his ability to see beauty and humor in the most unlikely of places. Peg. In the middle of the night, at 2 a.m., your Abba woke me. Risa, wake up, he said in a stern tone. He never spoke sharply, so his tone cut through my foggy haze of sleep. Risa, get up now. He didn't mince words, so I jumped out of bed and my adrenaline jolted me into action. Abba was standing over your crib and I joined him to check on you. To my horror, I looked down and your peg had fallen out. The peg is a small plastic feeding tube. It has an inflatable balloon on one end and a small cap on the other end that opens for feeding. The balloon had burst and the peg had slid its way out of your body as if your body knew it didn't belong and was expelling it outward. I went from adrenaline straight to panic. You were doing short breaks of 20 minutes at a time. And once we hit the 20 minute mark, your sugars would drop and we would have no way of feeding you. Abba called the emergency room and said to expect our arrival. I tried, without avail, to insert a new peg where the old one had been. The nurses had walked me through the steps before, but I had never done it on my own, and certainly not under duress. I tried to insert the peg into the gaping hole in your stomach. I had no time to be a mother right now. I was a nurse, and I banished my emotions to the deepest recesses of my mind and tried to focus on the task at hand. I couldn't even insert the new tube into the hole. It would not fit. I tried again. You were screaming. I'm sure that it was painful. I grabbed Vaseline, which I later found out should not be used, but I was desperate for time and out of options. I coated the tube in Vaseline and tried to insert it again, but to no avail. Out of options and out of time. We gave you a glucagon injection that would maintain your sugars until we got to the hospital. We grabbed all your equipment and medications and sped to the hospital. In the pitch black, on an empty road, on the way to the emergency room. Again, never a dull moment in this family. In fact, I longed for dull moments, the boring and banal moments of life. I was tired of the constant state of crises we found ourselves in, the never-ending marathon, the stress, the panic, the pressure to be good parents, good doctors, good nurses, all at the same time. And as it often did, the feeling of being overwhelmed overcame me, and I lost myself in despair. This incident, and many others like it, reminded me of the fragility of our existence. Our lives, our mobility, our ability to exist as a family outside these hospital walls, all depended on a little piece of plastic made in China, and it was terrifying. Parenthood. Once, a friend sent me an online quiz. 
What kind of parent are you? I clicked on the link, answering as honestly as I could, and as I finished and clicked the submit button, my answer popped up. Based on your answers, you are an overwhelmed parent. The description continued on. Every shower seems to you like a vacation. <laughs> so true and so accurate. Sometimes it feels like there's a line called impossible and right above that is parenthood. So hard, so draining, and so rewarding at the same time. It's the hardest job I ever loved, but it might just be killing me. Sesame Incident. One morning, we packed up and went out to breakfast. Just your regular family, with your pump, continuous glucose monitor, and Joey pump with continuous food through your peg. But you wouldn't know it by looking at us. All covertly placed and discreetly hidden, just your regular first-time parents out with their infant. You were sleeping in your stroller, so like any other parents, we took the time to leisurely order, sip our coffee, and soak up a few moments of peace and quiet. Just as breakfast arrived, you awoke. Murphy's Law of Parenthood. Just as you sit down to eat a nice meal or to curl up with a hot cup of coffee to enjoy a moment to yourself, the baby wakes up every time. You woke up just as breakfast arrived. You were immediately restless. As we snacked on fresh baguettes, fruits, and cheese, I suggested to your Abba that we give you a bite. You weren't yet eating with your mouth. That was another challenge that we weren't ready to face. There were too many other pressing issues. He scooped up a bite of trina, a Middle Eastern dip, similar to hummus, and made out of sesame. As it turns out, sesame is the third most prevalent allergy of babies, right behind peanut butter and milk. You had an immediate reaction. First, you threw up. Projectile vomit throwing up. Then your face started to swell. It's a scary feeling when the fight-or-flight response takes over your body. I froze. I felt the fear grip me and numb me from the inside out. The tightness in my chest took over my limbs and my mind. Everything froze. Complete numbness. Thankfully, your Abba was quicker on his feet. He paid the bill and exited quickly, looking for a cab to flag down to take us to the hospital. You continued to get worse, so he called the local emergency ambulatory services, Magenda Vida Dome, known as one of the best and most responsive emergency services in the world. They came within minutes. We transferred you quickly and carefully out of your stroller into the ambulance. You were still hooked up to your Joey. So I sat in the back of the ambulance with you on my lap, your CGM in one hand and your Joey in the other. The ambulance drove speedily down the road and stopped when it crossed paths with another ambulance. They transferred us from one ambulance to another. The second ambulance had an on-call physician who administered epinephrine on the spot. Your face began to clear up and the swelling subsided. The ambulance sped along to the hospital. By the time the ambulance pulled up to the hospital, you were completely fine. I was not. The stress of the episode, my paralysis, my powerlessness, combined with a rocky ambulance ride turned my stomach. And as they took the gurney out of the ambulance to wheel you into the PICU, I fell out of the ambulance and blindly groped my way through the alley to find an appropriate spot to throw up. I told Abba and the ambulance team that I would catch up with them. I just needed a few minutes to catch my breath and get some fresh air. Once I composed myself, I entered the PICU to find your bed. Fortunately, the first face I saw was a familiar one. 
Dr. House, a young, bright doctor whom we had aptly nicknamed for his creative, outside-the-box thinking and consistent stream of new theories and diagnosis during our time in the NICU. He gave me a big smile. Well, the good news is that you brought in a perfectly healthy child, he said. Aside from his underlying condition, of course. We stayed for a few hours for observation, and then they released us. Let me tell you, I did not miss that place at all. No love lost. And boy, did I punish myself. What a stupid mistake. What a stupid, preventable mistake. After everything we had already been through, I could have saved us a trip to the hospital. I would never feel the same way about Sesame again. Full circle. I remember last Yom Kippur, the holy Jewish day of the atonement. Ten days after you were born, lying on the floor in our small sterile hospital hostel room, pounding my fist to the ground, sobbing, begging, praying that I would get to keep you. You were up on the ninth floor in the NICU hooked up to a cocktail of medications and IVs. You were getting continuous food and assistance breathing with the oxygen tubing. Your monitors for heart rate, breathing rate, oxygen saturation, and blood pressure were constantly beeping, signifying that they were abnormal. I remember being so angry. Why? Why us? Why my son? Why my family? Pounding the ground. Please leave us alone. Let us be. Let this all be a bad dream. Let us go home and wake up in a completely different reality. Please don't let this be our reality. Pounding, pounding, sobbing. As if my tears could change the course of our future. As if my tears could transfer all your suffering to me. I had lived a good life, a full life, a great childhood growing up in the deep woods of New Hampshire. I was very lucky excelled in school, achieved everything I set my mind to, had an amazing family, and ride-or-die friends. I embarked on an adventure to move across the world to start a new life. I learned another language, another culture. I fell in love. I finished my second degree, an MBA in my second language. I was lucky enough to meet and marry the greatest man in the whole world. I had already lived a full life. Take me instead. Let him live. Take me instead. I felt like my own version of Jean Valjean, my inner soul performing Bring Him Home. But who was my audience? And so I prayed, begged, pleaded with the God I no longer believed in. As Nietzsche wrote, Not that you lied to me, but that I no longer believe in you. That is what has shaken me. And here I am, a year later, we've been home for months. You're down to only two medications, a huge accomplishment. Off continuous food, and we are down to very little medical equipment, able to move freely about. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Every year, Yom Kippur is a time for reflection, time for apologies, time to make amends. And as I look back upon the year, I feel as though I didn't spend time with anyone but you. Certainly not enough time to warrant apologies. So I will begin my preparations for Yom Kippur 
with a list of my apologies to you. And I hope that you can find it in your heart to forgive me. To my darling son, I am sorry. I am sorry that I could not be the mother I wanted to be. I am sorry that I could not protect you. I'm sorry that you were given such a rough start to life. And I am so proud of everything you have overcome. You have been through more in your one year than most people go through in a lifetime. And I am sorry that I did not have the power to change the cards that you were dealt. I am sorry that you did not get to enjoy being a baby. And I'm sorry that I did not enjoy being a mother more. Now it's easy to enjoy your babbles, laughs, and the shadows you make on the wall. But in the beginning, we did not have the luxury of time. I am sorry that your health was so unstable and I am grateful to be able to now see your trajectory towards recovery. It wasn't always that way. Either way I used to look, backwards or forwards, I used to just see despair and darkness. I'm sorry I wasn't always optimistic and I'm sorry that I had moments of despair when I almost gave up. Those were my weakest moments and I'm not proud of them. I'm sorry that I was more of a nurse and a doctor and a data analyst than your mother those first few months. I'm sorry that we were stuck in the hospital for all those months. And I'm sorry that your entire world, our entire world, consisted of fluorescent lights, hospital monitors, and alarms. I wanted to introduce you to Bach and fresh air and sunlight and nature long before you were stable enough to experience it. Most of all, I'm sorry that I was so powerless. Our circumstances were so beyond my control. As a mother, as a parent, I only want the best for you. But sometimes circumstances are too gray to decipher what the best is. What I can say is that I tried. I know that I tried, advocated, and fought for you as hard as I could. But unfortunately in this life, trying, Fighting, this effort is less than half the battle. So many things are beyond human control and need to be aligned in order for life to be smooth sailing. I'm sorry that I used to take that for granted. I never will again. I love you always. May you be sealed in the book of life and may your years only get better and easier. You deserve it. Love, Ima. Thank you for listening. This has been Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. And I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. You can find us on Amazon.com or like us on Facebook. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Leader and mastered by Keith Rigling. <laughs>